0: to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Dr. Zubin Demania, aka Z Dog MD. Zubin is a USCF Stanford trained internal medicine doctor and founder of Turntable Health, an innovative primary care clinic. He was also a hospitalist for many years. Zubin and I talk about the differences between mainstream Western medicine and alternative medicines. We talk about the politicization of COVID information. We talk about misinformation around the mRNA vaccines. We discuss the hatred directed at the unvaccinated. We talk about the absurdity of many vaccine mandates. We discuss the social stigma associated with getting COVID. We talk about whether long COVID is biological, psychological, or both. We discuss the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. We discuss the risk of myocarditis for young men getting the mRNA vaccines. We talk about dishonesty in public health messaging. We discuss the failures of the CDC and the FDA. We talk about the racial triaging of COVID antivirals. We talk about whether there is systemic racism in modern medicine, and much more. I really enjoyed this one. So without further ado, Dr. Zubin Demania. All right, Dr. Zubin, a.k.a. ZDog MD. It's great to have you on the show. Good to be here, man. It's really a thrill. I've been wanting to talk to you and meet you for a long time. Uh, I've been consuming a lot of your YouTube content as well as your podcast with Vinay Prasad. And you've had a way of threading through the madness on COVID that has been just extremely refreshing and really useful to a lot of people. So I just want to commend you. You're doing a kick-ass job. And I also want to just point my audience in your direction if they if they don't know. But I'm sort of curious how you came to inhabit the, the space in the information ecosystem that you inhabit now. And I'm curious about your background, too. I've seen you do these hilarious music videos that are like rap infused with medicine stuff. And, it, and it's really cool. So I'm curious what your story is and how you came to be this kind of sane middle ground as a voice on... COVID stuff. Man, well, first of all, thanks for the kind words I, from someone who just dropped
1: probably the dopest rap thing I've ever seen in my life. Dude, I watched that. I was like, feel just rage, jealousy, <laughs> anger, all the emotions, oh, right? Because I'm like, he, wow. So that was perfect, by the way. And my audience needs to check that out. Um, we'll, put, we'll put a link somewhere when I share this uh, side of it. So my, my story is actually, I'm not sure it's really radically different than yours in the sense that. I studied music and molecular biology and always kind of wanted to do something creative. I was always a creative type, but got kind of the, the gravity well of medicine started pulling me. I was at UC Berkeley and I just felt that pull. It was the kind of a synthesis of art and connection and relationship and science that that really kind of drew me. And it didn't hurt that both my parents were immigrant physicians. So I had these models of like, well, I don't want to do that because that looks like it sucks. So I always thought, you know, in medicine, I'll, I'll forge my own path. The problem is, I ended up going to UCSF, Stanford. You think that when you go in, but the way that our the way that we're trained is absolutely this like crushing hierarchical dogma machine, and you come out very conditioned and kind of a little broken, maybe more than a little broken. And so all these dreams of like being, you know, doing some kind of creative synthesis in medicine were kind of dashed against the rocks by training, realizing how are you going to get paid to do that, and just getting so conditioned. And so I was about. I don't know, halfway through a 10 year career as a hospital doc at Stanford. So we take care of just patients in the hospital. And I was still using like comedy and music and stuff on rounds to try to try to teach and blow off steam and like kind of deal with uh, the kind of tea kettling you do when you're just filled with it, you know, all this suffering and you have to blow it off. And the way we would do it is through kind of humor and trying to see All sides. When we thought a patient was doing something that was really counterproductive to their own health, we would try to inhabit, you know, do these things on rounds where we try to inhabit what it's like to be them, which was really hard for a lot of people because we're not trained to do it. But once you get in the groove of it, so that all being said, I got you know the classic burnout symptoms where I started getting detached and not caring and that kind of thing, and then created a YouTube channel that was a cry for help. So I created this character Z Dog MD because I was a I don't know why I did that, man. (laughs) In retrospect, I'm just like, what was I thinking? Cause I, I've been stuck with that kind of character and, you know, with the two G's cause one is necessary, but not sufficient, right. To be, you know, a thug and all this stupid crap that we were <laughs> doing back then. And it's because, you know, I was a big like early nineties hip hop fan and all my friends used to call me Z dog back in the nineties. And so it just kind of, then it stuck. So, but the idea was make videos that kind of entertained and educated. And as I started to do that, and this is a long answer to your very short question, but as I started to do that over the years, and shift into being more of a communicator and an educator that way and not seeing patients for money, right? Seeing them more as a teacher and a volunteer educator. What ended up happening, I realized that taking a dogmatic stance in any way would rally your own tribe and you'd get a ton of engagement and views and love. But what you wouldn't get was anyone else convinced that needed to be convinced. And you could not actually actualize what you were trying to do, whether you were talking about maybe the necessity of childhood vaccines or ways we can rationally think through our health, things like that. You were alienating groups of people by taking these firm stances, just like if you took a political stance very firmly, you're alienating 50% of the population. So my own sort of course started to change and COVID kind of really drove the stake through it because what I saw was all this division. And I said, well, we need to change entirely how we think. And actually my own thinking changed like I was able to inhabit all sides of these arguments much better than I was before. Like if you would look at me now, my 2015 self, which was, abjectly pro-vaccine without it was a a sort of pre-war mentality of like, give no quarter to anybody questioning anything to now where it's like, well, you know, we really need to have good, open, nuanced, non-censored conversations about everything. So that was kind of the path.
0: That's interesting. Before I talk about COVID and the lane you've occupied and the excesses and misinformation on all sides, I guess I, I, this is something I've never talked about. My relationship to medicine or the world of medicine, my background on it, that's informed some of my perspectives, which is that really I only encountered the medicine through my mom getting sick as a kid and, and eventually passing away when I was 18. And she was also heavily into alternative medicine and heavily critical of the mainstream. And she had a formal certificate from a school in Ayurvedic medicine, and ancient Indian medicine, and attempted to cure her cancer via traditional Indian medicine as opposed to mainstream medicine. And I think it's impossible to run history a different way, but. There's a big part of me that blames her death, at least how early she died, on what I would consider her indoctrination into various kinds of alternative medicines and her involvement with particular doctors that really are, I would just say the norm is is malpractice, right? Their practice is malpractice. And I think that that formed my background as a kind of deep, a deep well of resentment against alternative medicine and against people that distrust the system, flawed as it is. At the same time, I pride myself on being an open-minded person and someone that doesn't let my personal history or personal resentments color my worldview to such an extent that I end up doubling down on on dogmas that, that, that I really shouldn't. And so I think I've become more open-minded to people that critique mainstream medicine. You know, I've read very interesting stuff by Ross da- Ross Douthit recently, one of my favorite writers at the New York Times, who just got, he had Lyme disease something like five years ago. And as a result of pain, just tried everything in the book. Quack cures on, you know, things that would be qualified as misinformation. And some of them ended up working for him. And it's changed his point of view to something more like, listen, when you're in pain, you do what works. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot of wisdom in that as well. So that's kind of my that was sort of my background coming into COVID. And um, so I guess before we talk about that, I sort of want to talk about your big picture views on mainstream medicine versus alternative medicine. What you think the incentives of big pharma sort of causing because, you know, on one end, you have people that don't trust anything that comes out of big pharma because they're making money off it. And people that see conspiracies anywhere someone is profiting and on the other hand you might you might have someone like me a few years ago maybe resentfully and dogmatically dismissing any critique of big pharma as of the mainstream as dangerous. So what can you sort of say about that terrain? There's actually so much to unpack when everything you said, you know, I mean, first of all,
1: I'm sorry about your mom. I mean, that is traumatic and you're absolutely within normal human parameters to feel the way you did. What's remarkable about what you just did though, is you put your bias out there. You actually named it, you made it explicit Mm -hmm. instead of operating unconsciously from it, which many of us do right? So that's really awesome. And so let's use this kind of, to kind of frame this discussion of mainstream versus alternative. I think we have this kind of logical fallacy of the false dichotomy here that these things are mutually exclusive and that medicine is either a reductionist kind of materialist receptor binding agent, like a pharmaceutical, you know, mechanistic left brain parts create the whole kind of way of looking at things, which is more the classic Western medicine training that we get versus the extreme other view, which is no, it's, it's all holistic and interdependent and a little bit magical. And nature has been doing this thing forever and so on and so forth. So these kind of dipoles seem mutually exclusive, but just like we have, and I'm a big fan of Ian McGilchrist's work on left and right hemisphere of our brain and how they see the world completely differently. And often they'll inhibit each other through the corpus callosum, the fibers that connect the two hemispheres. But in reality, increasingly we're living in a, in a left hemisphere dominant bureaucratic parts rather than whole world, whereas really it's a balance. So the mainstream medical model, which I think many are now starting to recognize if they hadn't already, is deeply flawed, really says, listen, we can reduce a human organism to one quadrant, which is an it. It is like the everything we can measure and quantify in the body, and the organs, and the tissues, in the blood. So that means a lot of testing. It means a lot of treatment with pharmaceuticals. It means a lot of procedures, mechanical procedures on the body in the form of surgeries, et cetera. And to the degree that it works, it works very well, specifically if you have a one horse problem, like a trauma or a cancer that has one receptor that's abnormal or one defect that you can target with a particular chemotherapeutic agent. There are certain leukemias like that, et cetera. Where I think it falls short is the fact that every single disease that we suffer from is what my friend, Dr. Rachel Zofnitz calls biopsychosocial. So there's a biological it component. There's a psychological I interior consciousness component. In other words, this what we call the mind-body connection, it's really a one thing. And that does influence our health directly in measurable ways in the it sphere, in terms of cortisol and dopamine and oxytocin, but in ways that are more subjective and qualitative, but actually have direct effects on our, our well-being, health, pain perception, suffering, et cetera. And then so bio, psycho, then social the kind of we component is actually also massive. So what are social norms around, say, you mentioned Lyme disease with uh, the New York Times writer, This idea that there is a, that's a biopsychosocial disease. There's the biological component of the infection with the bacterium that causes that. There's the psychological components that are sometimes triggered by the biological components, sometimes independent. And then there's a social thing like, is chronic Lyme disease a thing? How do you manage it? You go online to a forum and other people are sharing stories and it becomes this inner penetrating web of reality. That's how humans are. That's how reality is. It's multi-quadrant. And so, what's happened in both polls is they try to reduce all the quadrants to one quadrant instead of seeing it more holistically. So, I see it more now as a yes and. And when you're looking at, like, say, pharmaceutical companies, I think there, there's very good criticism that, of course, they're incentivized to reduce it to an it and a receptor and a vaccine and a Paxilvid or whatever it is. But on the other side, you have the alternative side, which is no, well, we claim to be holistic, integral, and all that, but we throw away for the most part, hundreds of years of scientific progress and go back to herbs and spices and magical energy fields, right? Now, the truth is anyone who's done a meditation retreat, which I have or had these experiences with you know, the so-called alternative medicine, understand that there's a powerful connection between mind, body experience, biopsychosocial and pain in itself is very modulated by the mind. And so these experiences, let's say Reiki or one of these like energy healing practices, like you could look at from a scientific it's perspective and say, there's nothing there. Like this is faith healing, like what is this? But then people who've gone through it will say, no, I actually can experience energy fields in the body. So from an internal eye standpoint, it's real, which means there's a modulation of pain or suffering, which means there's a modulation of your cortisol and various hormones, which affect the it domain, which, which means it's all this web of connection. So what's happened to me is I was like you, meaning I'm, I'm, I still have that big component of real bias against that space because when it goes cuckoo, it is dangerous. People die you know, and, you know, using your mom as an example. Steve Jobs is another example. You know, he really neglected this very treatable type of pancreatic cancer. And, but then he would show up at Stanford because we were there at the time and kick whoever was in the CT scanner off, use the Jobs reality distortion field and get his scan. And, you know, he'd be riddled with tumor and then he'd go back to whatever he was doing. And it's more complicated than that, right? And I don't profess to know his case that deeply, but I would say that that's an example of when one extreme pulls you. So then you have conspiracies and this anti-pharma thing. And then you have the reductionist world. If no, everything's a pill and a procedure. So we really need to build the corpus callosum between left and right brain in medicine and and beyond. And I think that it just, it means making the implicit explicit, finding a synthesis position
0: and starting to explore it. I think one way to build that bridge is to emphasize that it's a scientific fact that pain is ultimately a, a psychological phenomenon or it's you know the same physical processes that create emotions and feelings like fear are creating pain, right? It, it's just neurons firing. And I remember there was a good article a couple years ago in the Times called The Placebo Effect is Real. And that was a great way of encapsulating it because- I think most people learn about the placebo effect as something like when you take a sugar pill and you get faked into thinking that your pain has gone away. Well, no, there's no, there's no such thing as being faked into thinking your pain has gone away or being faked into feeling better you in fact feel better, right? And so that's as real a feeling as any caused by a pathogen or some other chemical. And that that's just one narrow example of a general point about how human beings work, which is that everything's happening in the brain. So like if you have been on meditation retreats and I've had at least one extremely strange experience of my entire body tingling almost orgasmically from head to toe just simply by breathing and focusing right and it, it's not something I could create on purpose and if I had been if I if I had been in an environment where there were people where there was a kind of belief system whether it was Jesus or Muhammad or Krishna or what have you, I might have interpreted that as well yeah, this belief system must be true. But I was at a a very sort of secularized Buddhist context where they're just like, yeah, you're going to have weird experiences when you focus on the breath sometimes. There have been other people that have gone to those retreats. I remember one person I met had one of the worst chronic pain illnesses, uh, whose name I, I, I now forget. I forget the name of the illness, but it was just like, you could see this man with every step. Every step was a mile for this man. And I talked to him for a while at the retreat on one of the few times we got to speak And he said, you know, I've tried everything in life. I have tried every kind of pain medication you can imagine. Meditation is the only thing that's worked. And sometimes I have to do it lying on my back because I can't stand in and sit in an upright position, but it's the only thing that's made the pain go away. And again, that can be understood in a scientific sort of Western medicine, placebo effect is real kind of paradigm. So I think that's one way to build the bridge that you're talking about.
1: Yes. And actually what you said is really important. This idea that you were in a secular Buddhist kind of thing. That's that's what I did too. And what's interesting is part of our retreat was learning, kind of recognizing thoughts and beliefs as thought and letting them go. And so interesting thing happened to me regarding pain. So I was saying pain is biopsychosocial, meaning there's usually a biological trigger. There's a psychological piece because it's all in the mind. And then there's a social piece too, like what are expectations? It gets very complicated. So I was, I don't know, day four into this thing, silent retreat. And I have this chronic neck pain that's been happening because of this, you know, this constant tech neck that we all have. And I I recognize it's been going on now for three, four years. It comes and goes. I was really terrified going into the retreat that sitting and doing meditation for that 10 hours a day was going to make it worse. And the first two days it was fine. Then by like day three, four, it started really hurting. And I watched the mind. You can see the thoughts start to arise. Oh my God, I'm damaged. I'm not going to make it through this. I'm permanently injured. People are going to look at me funny when I'm constantly shifting and making noise. And so, but by that point, you've developed enough concentration to see those as thoughts and go, oh, look at that. Thoughts, thoughts, belief. What if I let those go? What's actually here? This vibrating energy field that I'm calling pain, dive into it, just absolutely feel it in the rawest possible way. And it expands. Suddenly I am this field of vibration and it becomes pleasurable. And then it dissipates. It was the most remarkable thing. And if I came from a tradition of faith healers or Reiki uh, folks or whatever it is, I would have packaged that as, okay, I did some energy healing on myself. I opened my chi, I did this, that, the other thing. Because I come from the background I come from, I was like, well, pain is biopsychosocial. And I dove into the psychological component. I recognized the social component and I knew the biological a piece of it and just by modulating that internal state it changed. So that's powerful and but it can't I don't think it can be reduced to a simple mechanistic model. I think it correlates to mechanism, but there's something there that I think those quadrants don't reduce to each other even though they correlate to
0: each other. Well, let's get into COVID stuff. My guess is that your background in meditation has and your tendency to look at your own thoughts and biases has been really useful to you during COVID because One of your hallmarks as a content creator is to put your biases right up front, right? To say like, this is the kind of story that I would be tempted to disagree with because I come from this kind of a background. This is the kind of story that I'm going to tend to love and want to believe, right? You put those up front and your audience presumably is smart enough to understand that everyone has biases, right? Everyone has We all suffer from confirmation bias. Increasingly everyone suffers from some kind of partisan or quasi-partisan biases. And you know, you're one of the few people that will say, I want to make sure that I'm giving credit here to the other side on this point because I I'm the type of person that might be tempted to dismiss this point. And I think that's made you really, really, really crucial to understanding what's going on. And I've said this before to a few of my other guests that I've talked about COVID with, but I remember this moment right when Americans were starting to really care about COVID in March of 2020. And we, the whole world was trying to figure out what the fatality rate was and whether this was going to kill our parents or our kids, how worried to be. And there was a moment where it wasn't yet politicized. There was a moment where there was no right-wing slant. There was no left-wing slant on COVID information. It was just like, is the fatality rate 1%, 5%? And I was reading articles about it. And I was never worrying to myself, oh, well, this is a New York Times article. So it's going to have a left-wing slant. They're going to want to inflate inflate the case fatality rate. Oh, this is a Fox article. They're going to want to minimize There was just, we were all sincerely trying to figure it out as a civilization and there was not yet a partisan symbolism to the conversation. And naively, I I thought it might stay that way, but it turns out the problem is not with the topics. The problem is with us. We polarize everything because we need polarization. And so there became the sort of two COVID camps that we still have today. And you've had a really nice way of talking about this as as narrative, counter-narrative, and synthesis, I believe. So can you kind of describe that? So that idea
1: comes from Peter Lindbergh, who also coined this idea of clean bias, meaning right up front, you put your bias out there, you go, okay, here are my biases so that you guys understand where I'm coming from. And then the other thing you pointed out was this idea of really representing a counter-argument perfectly, as well as you can, rather than misrepresenting it or distorting it. So distorting it means like kind of creating a straw man, creating a fake argument that you're saying the opposite side is making and then beating the crap out of it because it's easy to do. This is called steel manning, where you actually create the most strongest possible vision of what your adversary in the debate is actually arguing so that you can, first of all, show respect to them. Second of all, be quite clean that you understand what they're saying. You're not misrepresenting it. You're trying to find truth. You're not trying to beat anybody, right? So I think that's an important part of the discourse. Now, this idea of sort of thesis or narrative, antithesis or counter-narrative, and then synthesis um, or integration, it, Peter brings up. And, and this has been fascinating in COVID because, because COVID, you know, like everything is biopsychosocial. So there's the science of it. Like, let's figure out what the infection fatality rate is. Like you're saying, like of all the people infected, how many people actually get sick and die and so on. And that's apparently a difficult number to come by. That in itself is what is, but then there's the question of what ought to be. And that's filtered through our values. Do we want to shut things down? Do we want to put small businesses out of business? Do we want to protect children or do we want to protect elders? Or do we want to do both? How do we want to affect the economy? So these that's more in the realm of the political. And so now you start to filter through our moral tendencies, as Jonathan Haidt calls them, moral matrices or moral taste buds. You know, do we value liberty versus oppression? Do we value care versus harm? Do we value fairness versus cheating? Do we value sanctity versus degradation? And if we do, how do we interpret COVID through those lenses? And so as you saw, When we were all under the pall of like confusion and fear together, and we were trying to figure it out, there was a unity. Everybody was just like, let's figure this out. Then as things start to clarify, the division begins and you get a narrative or thesis position, which is the mainstream media, which in the old days, you'd just be like, well, yeah, that's just the truth because the mainstream vets everything and they check their facts and so on. But now even that's not clear to a lot of people because the mainstream narrative is, hey, vaccinate everybody and mandate it, mandate masks, every single life that we can save, we should save at whatever cost. And um, COVID is dangerous and we need blanket social policies that protect the most people, flatten the curve, all of that. So the kind of thesis narrative, but then you have the, what started to spring up, which was an antithesis narrative. Now that started by people going, but wait, but wait, we don't even agree that That the infection fatality rate is so high that we ought to be stopping everything in society. Maybe we ought to do something more targeted. Maybe we ought to focus on the people that are at highest risk, et cetera. Of course, there's nuance on how to do that. Can it be done, et cetera. So these are like good discussions. But what ended up happening was certain press started covering these more narrative things and it started to split into political left and right. And then what you have is like the Foxes and the Breitbarts and, and the Blazes and others are Pushing the narrative of, hey, freedom versus oppression. This is top-down control. The counter narrative says COVID is not as dangerous as you think. We should target protection. Mandates are gonna are not helpful. Masks don't work. Vaccine mandates are counterproductive. You're overblowing the effects of the vaccines. And let's get back to some semblance of normal. And I, again, I'm not doing these, I'm not steel manning these as well as I could. I'm just quickly shorthanding it. And then people tend to migrate into the camps based on their own moral matrix. Like, well, I tend to value these things. I'm politically kind of this way. I fall in. And then, then what happens is it becomes a snowball effect where you're sucked into the vortex of that echo chamber. And social media then instantiates these two big hive minds, which is each of us is a neuron. Our neurotransmitter is likes and dislikes. We get a piece of news, we respond instantly, and it creates an epi brain almost, like a f- emergent phenomenon of like this thesis i have mind feels this way if you diverge from it you actually get pushed back down on like you will actually get extruded from that mind it feels like that mm-hmm. if you are take a heterodox position and you're from the mainstream you're going to feel it on twitter you're going to feel it on social media you're going to feel it in the real world when your grand rounds at the hospital is canceled because you said something that thesis disagrees with like maybe you shouldn't mask 2 year old kids On antithesis side, same thing. If you dare to say, you know what, I went and got a booster because I'm worried about my 80-year-old father and I don't want to make him sick, that tribe is going to show up in your comments saying, you're you're swallowing pharma's pill, you're going to get cancer, listen to Malone, listen to McCullough, et cetera. And it just becomes a self-perpetuating echo chamber of left and right. And what we try to do is again, build that corpus callosum in between to try to see a synthesis position, which is yes and, there's some truth, but partiality to each. What's a higher stance we can take that sees the truth in both ends, tries to synthesize a position while recognizing our own bias? It's hard to do, but it's doable. People have done it for centuries. Hegelian synthesis
0: has been going on for a long time. So my basic take, and I I agree with your analysis of the situation, my basic take was that last year in 2021, the most important kind of delusion was the anti-vax delusion. We knew the vaccines were extremely effective against hospitalization and deaths. And there was a machine of propaganda inflating the concerns about danger. And I think there are totally legitimate conversations to be had around myocarditis risk and that kind of thing. But, and you're way closer to this than I am, but there's nothing I've seen that has risen to the level of a legitimate general concern of danger for the average person taking the vaccine. So, it seemed to me that in 2021, the most important kind of delusion was the right-wing anti-vax propaganda that was being believed to the detriment and death, in fact, of of many people. As we've moved into 2022 and Delta transformed into Omicron, which was quite mild for almost everyone, the it seems to me more and more the kind of delusion that's most pressing is, you know, mandating boosters for people that clearly don't benefit from them, masking children, Zoom school, and just a sense that there's no precaution that, that could possibly go too far. And um, so it seems to me both sides have been right at different times, or, or more right at least. And they've been right by accident of circumstance, right, which is the scary part. It's like you want to be right on purpose because you're tracking the objective reality. You're responding properly to the level of threat. And when the level of threat goes down, your response goes down. But it seems like that's not where most people are, although that could be beginning to shift. So does that seem right to you? How would you parse it differently, if at all?
1: Yeah, no, no, I think that's that's a good analysis. It's interesting because, you know, when the vaccines came out, I mean, these are miracle these are miraculous. I will say that word because you took something that we've never done, you did it in a time frame consistent with actually helping a lot of people and you prevented severe disease. Now, I from the beginning have been telling people, listen, just get vaccinated and shut up, you know, but if you don't want to, I understand. So even back then I was saying, I totally get why your intuition tells you this is a bad idea because you think it's been rushed and I have ways to explain why it hasn't been rushed or that should not be a concern. It's new and you're worried about long-term effects and we have ways to talk about, hey, no vaccine in history has had a long-term effect that's manifest beyond the first two months. In other words, we usually see it within the first two months of administration. It's just the nature of how these things work. And the politicization. So people are the victim of this um, politicization. So if they're in the wrong tribe, they're more likely to fear the vaccine, right? Whereas if they're in the left tribe, say the blue church, they're more likely to overestimate the danger of COVID, like you said, to their mm-hmm. children. And they're putting their kids in N ninety-five respirators and sending them to school. And and so when I talked about it and when I continue to talk about it, all of this is true. But understanding getting in the skin of someone who um, you know, because you called it delusion, it is because it is a misperception of what might actually be true. But I think when I'm talking about it, I wouldn't use the term delusion. I would say, oh, you're believing exactly what You ought to believe if I were molecule for molecule in your skin, in that tribe, in that hive mind with your intuition. So let's talk through that. And what I found, Coleman, is that like the emails that I get are usually from people who are more in the resistant camp. And they'll say the way you talk about it, I didn't feel dumb. I didn't feel shamed. I didn't feel coerced. And I went out and got the vaccine because you made me feel... Like I might help my mother or it just felt like the right thing to do after listening to what you said. So some of it is our communication. I I feel like the thesis tribe really likes, because they're right about vaccines, right? So they really like that and they get exuberant in how they talk about it. Whereas the Mm -hmm. right side, the red church side, the antithesis side is actually not wrong about The restrictions and their effects on children, effects on business, like the age disparity of risk, Mm -hmm. understanding risk that you're more likely to die in a car accident than you are of COVID if you're under 30. So having those conversations actually in a synthesis way is quite important. So you're right. Now it's shifted to where reality is much more consistent with antithesis view, but still vaccinating is a good idea. In any country, you look at Canada, 80 plus percent vaccination rate, their per capita death rate is a third of the United States with similar population, although they don't have the same minority population. They don't, they may not have the same levels of diabetes. So there's a lot of nuance there, but highly vaccinated populations, Great Britain, they do better. So all of it's kind of true, but partial and trying to dig through it while being, it's tough because you want to say, oh, like, this is just how it is, but that doesn't actually um, cut through the the tribal thinking it's ve- it's very nuanced
0: yeah I think I've actually struggled to get a doctor on my podcast who will explain why the vaccines are safe and effective without simply sneering at people who disagree and I've tried to do that not very successfully because you know not everyone has your attitude. Towards it, there is a kind of enjoyment in the suffering of the unvaccinated that is sometimes barely concealed. There's been this this sort of tradition of publicizing when a you know an unvaccinated person, especially a public person, gets hospitalized or dies with a Schadenfreude that is just so barely concealed. That's the kind of attitude. It is of a piece with the famous deplorables comment by Hillary Clinton, which is. Now, at the end of the day, if people think that you think that they're just fucking rubes, it's it's going to be very hard in a natural way for for them to listen to you, even when you're right. Especially if you make no effort to correct for your condescension.
1: Man, you have nailed it. I'll be honest with you. Part of the reason I get a lot of criticism from blue from a thesis tribe. It's funny now. I call it blue tribe, red tribe because it's so political. You can tell on Twitter based on the description in the handle, like which tribe they're in, like it's really quite clear now that we're wearing masks where we're using sort of pronoun designations and things like that as Mm -hmm. a tribal identifier rather than anything else in many, not always, but in many cases and you can see the same thing on the, on the red side. Right. So I struggle. I used to be that guy Coleman, like I would, because with kids vaccines it's tough for me because the anti-vaccine component pre-covid that was anti-kids vaccine it really felt like man these people are harming kids who are innocents and there's a righteous indignation a moral outrage that happens and if you ever see kids get sick with a preventable illness in the hospital you get you get radicalized yeah. and So there are a lot of doctors, myself included, who got very angry. And I would make videos like, we should have no quarter for these people, like just ban them from social media, crazy stuff like that. And I realized I was totally wrong. I was completely wrong because I could not inhabit the view that they had cleanly because I was so biased. Now with COVID, it's much easier for me because these are smart people who message me. These are engineers and lawyers and other doctors who are like, dude, do you feel like everybody's gone crazy with the safety creep? Like, like if we can do one thing, we want to like do another thing. And and, you know, this kind of thinking about it has made it difficult now to try to find a doctor to talk about vaccines. You're either going to get cuckoo McCoco puffs, you know, Malone. And I say this because, and this is my bias. When I listen to Malone, like my skin crawls and I want to stab my eyes out because everything he's saying is so easy to just go, yeah, that's just not right. And it's, from an anti-vaccine playbook that I know very well, but when I talk about him publicly, right? I try to inhabit the position that he's that he's in, and take the parts that he is saying that I do really I can inhabit. Like, hey, you know what? Pharma is misincentivized. You know what? It we should look at therapeutics too. Not in you can study you know ivermectin and all of that, but really look at the other therapeutics that have been randomized control trials shown to help and promote them. And so you try to do that, but you try to get a doc on the show. Like when I interview docs, my the criticism that thesis tribe levels at me is why are you always interviewing these heterodox positions, these contrarians, Vinay Prasad, Monica Gandhi, who by the way, just had her grand rounds, pediatric grand rounds at UCSF canceled because a mob on social media apparently made a stink about you know her heterodox positions on covid Marty McCary, Jay Bhattacharya. I get these guys on because they don't they they try not even to shame the blue church side as much as they can but if you get like Eric Topol or one of these other guys on there is a barely concealed like dude come on are you stupid get vaccinated and they're you know they're very not persuasive
0: wrong. yeah there <laughs> yeah. The degree to which this has gotten crazy in in some places, I mean, I can just tell two personal stories and I'm sure anyone living in blue America is going to have these stories and there are analogies in red America. It's just, I happen to be living in New York. I happen to have grown up in a, a liberal suburb of New York. So as heterodox as my views are still the social bubbles I've just grown up in have only barely punctured because of massive effort. That's how thick these bubbles tend to be. But, you know, I have one musician friend that's a professor, just like the the sweetest guy and such an excellent professor who was called by the president of his university where he teaches music and told he had to get the booster by tomorrow in order to teach his get this Zoom class. This is he was teaching Zoom class at the beginning of the semester and had to get the booster on pain of being suspended without pay. And so he did it. He's not an especially dogmatic person either way with the vaccine. He was not like, I'm going to, it's not worth losing my job over. I I don't fear it, but it's something he just wouldn't have done because he didn't feel he was high risk. He didn't feel it was just a bit of a nuisance for him. But the idea that people all over the country are just being forced to do this thing that is neither particularly harmful nor particularly beneficial for them, but that, that is just being applied by force is insane. The
1: problem with the booster thing for people under 65, you know, it's the people over 65 or people over 50 with multiple comorbid, comorbid conditions that can benefit from a booster in terms of severe disease, which is what we care about, keeping people out of the hospital, all that. Colds and flus, we don't care about as much. We get them every year. But what we're doing now is we're coercing young people into getting something that has a very tiny benefit for them individually, and a very tiny benefit communally, because Omicron spreads largely regardless, although the vaccine does reduce your chances of actually acquiring it. So there is a small community benefit. But the question is people, individuals can make that decision if they live with an elder who's at high risk, someone who's immunocompromised, et cetera, you can make the decision. So now it is like more in the realm of individual choice, as opposed to necessarily a communitarian, we need to mandate this thing. But what we've done now is we've created this cognitive dissonance where people are just, they recognize like, this is crazy. I'm doing a zoom course. And now our public health trust, continues to plummet, there's resentment and something that was seen in the 1918 flu pandemic, which is called psychological reactance, where people who are told what to do when they can't see it, it's invisible, or it doesn't make sense to them, they get very resentful and they will try to do the opposite through whatever means necessary. This is normal human behavior. I know you you did a great show with Steven Pinker talking about our heuristics and our biases and things like that. These are actually adaptive in certain circumstances. And so they're being actually good human beings. It may not be, very adaptive to the current world. But the thing is, when you have policies like this that trigger that, you're causing harm. And so that's where we are now. We're in this like kind of group thinking. And then what that does, it validates the conspiracy thinkers. Oh, see, it's top-down control. It's pharma. It just continues to feed that line of thinking. It's very, very, very bad, very damaging.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of what people blame on conspiracy in this realm is nothing more than a function of tribalism and confirmation bias, right? It's, it's not it's far less often evil people than it is just a group of people circling the wagon on a particular issue and becoming nuts as a result of group psychology. That This other story, I have a friend who works in a lab and she got Omicron and was told by her boss in the lab to not tell anyone in the hospital that they work at because it would reflect badly on her. In other words, the ambient level of judgmentalness, if that's a word, towards anyone who got Omicron, the strain that everyone is most likely to get, right? Like the degree of sneering and assumption that you're sort of in the wrong tribe for having been risky enough to contract it was so great that it made more sense to lie about why you were missing work than to, to suffer from the stigma of having been seen to get Omicron. Um, and I almost, you know, I, I almost didn't believe her when she told me because <laughs> I was I'm, I'm far removed enough that I'm, I'm not deeply in any of these spaces or subcultures where that level of stigma would apply. Um, But it really has gone way too far. And as it becomes less of an objective threat, as I said, our response should recalibrate. Absolutely. You know, what you're pointing at here is fascinating. This idea of
1: shame and stigma around getting infected. So... Omicron actually was the great equalizer because everybody, 40% of the US Americans apparently, I, I don't know if that statistic is incorrect, ha, may have been infected at some point with Omicron. Mm-hmm. It's the first time since 1918 that this many humans have been sick at once wow. because it's that that contagious. But what's interesting is we go back to Heights' sort of moral palette and the religiosity of this. So, you know, we have this kind of God-shaped hole in, in the world, you know, in our post-secular, post-modern. This is all great, but there's a hole, that god used to fill in terms of the meaning in terms of the what ought and so the way it's filled now is there's a religiousification of these sort of secular matters so if you look at covid in the in the thesis side the blue church side in those circles like where i live here san francisco right same thing liberal bubble there is a sanctity versus degradation moral palette like oh that person is impure they got omicron they failed somehow in their virtue and now they've allowed this Contaminant into society here, into our community. The other way to look at that is oh, they didn't get a booster. They didn't get double vaccinated and a booster. And they didn't get their kids vaccinated. And they didn't get their five year old vaccinated. They are impure. They are dirty. They did not get the baptism of the vaccine. In the red church side, it's a little different. It's more like, no, do not let that impure vaccine that's created by these monster devilish institutions under this conspiracy into your body, into the temple of your body. And next, Instead, use the holy sacraments of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, which are the treatments that will prevent, you know, this contaminant. But don't worry too much about the contaminant because it's it's made up by these people that want money. So it, it's a religious sort of fervor around this.
0: Thing. Is there a sense in which Omicron is the vaccine mandate we didn't ask for. In other words, everyone, I guess 40% is not really enough, but I assume maybe there were slightly more incidents among the unvaccinated who now have some cell memory, immune cell memory for COVID. And presumably the next strain would be similar enough to, so that they're protected in some sense, to some degree, uh, from hospitalization and death because of their immune system remembering Omicron. Do you think that is going to be useful for our population to have that kind of Omicron immunity? Yeah, and in fact, so uh, just to dive in that... Briefly, back in
1: December when Omicron was first kind of described in South Africa, I was listening to what the South Africans were saying and they were saying, yeah, it basically ripped through, we didn't get a ton of hospitalization and then it ripped off really quickly, and it makes you think that largely we already have a certain level of immunity between vaccine and previous Delta and Alpha infections and so on, you know, who knows what that percentage was, but it was probably 70-80% if not more, uh say in the United States. Then what happens is Omicron comes and it it replicates in the upper airway at like 70 what Delta used to do, it doesn't typically descend as deep. So it causes less severe disease unless you're at risk or unlucky. You can get sick, very sick from from Omicron. And it's just a numbers game. So you'll get hospitals stressed because so many people get infected. But the immunity generated by Omicron is going to most likely be quite good because it is again, spike protein. And if you've been vaccinated, previously infected and got Omicron, you're going to have very robust immunity, even to potentially future variants in terms of severe disease. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty clear that the immunity to infection that means that antibodies form, and you actually prevent the replication in the upper airways and so on. That's tricky. It's and and it was a mis it was sort of miscommunicated in the early days of the pandemic by CDC and others saying, hey, these vaccines are so great, ninety percent reduction in even just getting infected, and that may have been true with early variant, but and there's other sort of biases there. But it ain't true now. And what we ought to be saying is, hey, we're going to keep you from dying or getting hospitalized. That's why you get vaccinated. So when you hear stories about this double vaccinated boosted person getting Omicron, don't surprised that did they die you know and the answer is no and so with omicron now you have according to paul offit who's been on my show a couple of times he's he's great because he's a thesis guy invented a vaccine, co-invented a rotavirus vaccine, is as pro-vaccine as you can get. And he's come out saying boosters for young people is a crazy idea and mandating them is even crazier. That's the kind of doctor I like to talk to on my show, somebody who can actually span that nuanced synthesis position. But he said that we're probably at 90 plus percent total immunity in this country now with the Omicron wave, which is getting pretty close to a time when you're going to have trouble overwhelming hospitals with severe right. disease. So why are we swinging a policy hammer that's going to cause psychological reactance when the benefit is so small now,
0: mm. you know? Another topic I want to hit is long covid. This goes back to the idea that pain and other symptoms are all bio what would you call it bio-psycho-social? biopsychosocial? Right. So long covid is something I've I've looked into a little bit and you know I've had I've had friends that have the long covid symptoms loss of taste for months loss of smell from the first or, or strain or delta brain fog and so forth. You know, I'm also aware that someone with a hypochondriac's personality who gets COVID is very likely to sort of to have their hypochondriac reaction and blame being a little, you're a little too tired one day and you think you have brain fog. And as we were saying, thinking you have brain fog can very plausibly cause you to have brain fog or or worrying that you're fatigued. Believing you have long COVID can lead to symptoms that are as real as real gets. So what is your perspective on long COVID? I mean, there's, I guess there's three possible positions there's more than three, but there's three I'll i I'll mention. One is long COVID is very serious problem. We don't know how bad it gets. We should be doing a lot to prevent even contracting COVID, even mild COVID because of the possibility of getting long COVID. That's sort of one perspective. On the other extreme would be, this is mostly hypochondriacs blaming, like responding to polls about how they, you know, they have neck pain or something and they feel too tired, which like doesn't everybody and blaming it on long COVID because they've been paying too much attention to left-wing news and have been sort of sold a convenient reason to explain their malaise, right? And then there's there would be maybe some middle position of it's real to some degree and inflated to some degree and maybe the inflation in a kind of placebo effect is causing it to be more real. And, um, so I'll just give you those three options as a kind of jumping off point. What do you make of long COVID? Yeah, I make Coleman that you're trying to get me canceled and uh, a (laughs) ton of hate mail
1: and uh, death threats. So thank you for that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so long COVID, no long COVID is exactly, that's the spectrum that you described is, is correct. That's how people see it. Like it's either severe, dangerous threat, something in the middle or, total like fantasy. That's a um, mass hysteria or what the antithesis tribe has called mass formation psychosis, right? That everybody is part of this collective delusion, What they don't realize is they also have a collective delusion. Like when you, you're you almost projecting a little bit, like everybody does, right? We're all captured by these kind of hive minds. So long COVID is a great example of this biopsychosocial process. Like you said, there's a biological trigger, viral infection. Now we have precedent for this. Epstein-Barr virus that causes causes mononucleosis and can cause certain leukemias, Epstein or not leukemias, uh certain types of cancers. The Epstein-Barr virus can cause or seems to trigger a kind of
0: a longer syndrome in some people. Yeah, actually one of my very best friends his entire life was changed by Epstein-Barr virus. Is that right? Yeah, he for a very long time he thought that he was having some kind of he was a drummer and he thought he was having some Early onset arthritis, or something, or he wasn't practicing the right way. So he kept practicing harder and harder. A a friend of mine that went to Juilliard. And for years, he was just, you know, trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with him. And um, very much like Ross Douthit in this way, was like gaslighting himself and being gaslit by doctors um, until he finally realized he had this long syndrome caused by Epstein Barr virus and everything mainstream and alternative to semblance of normal. So that, that kind of thing is very real. It's very real. And
1: the thing is, because it has a biological trigger, right? Like people will say, well, Lyme infection, Epstein-Barr. And again, I'm not an expert in this, but I'll say this. We know that certain viruses, like how much of chronic fatigue syndrome is long flu? We don't know Mm -hmm. because we've never really studied it properly. There's often a viral trigger potentially for type one diabetes because it's an autoimmune kind of thing. And at some point you're going to get it, but that virus puts you over the edge or so on. So with COVID, you have this trigger, the COVID infection. Now you'll see in certain news, like, oh, the thing infects the brain. And that's why you lose smell and this sort of like panic. I, I was just driving my daughter and her friend, my daughter's 14, we live in the Bay Area, and her friend from the mall for some birthday thing yesterday, and I was listening into their conversation in the back. And my daughter like kind of absorbs from me a healthy skepticism of everything in the news. And her friend was saying, hey, did you know that COVID infects the brain? And that's why people get depressed and they have these long symptoms because there's all this COVID in the brain. And my daughter was like, I didn't know that. And she's like, no, I read it in the New York Times. They said this, this, and this. And I was like, now, wait a minute now, hold on. So there's the social component is there's this now expectation that this thing can do this. Now, the truth is sure. Anything can get, you know, a lot of things can get in the brain. The loss of smell, like this is a spectrum, maybe we'll back up. So you have the biological component and then there's actual other biological things with that for example, smell loss, taste loss, COVID actually infects those sustentacular support cells in your near your nasal sort of nerves that support the nerves. And those take months sometimes to, to regenerate. And so there's a real good biological reason why so you have the loss of smell is,
0: is not uh, neurological. So
1: it depends on how you define neurological. The sustentacular cells support the nerves that detect in the olfactory nerve. In in the in the lining of the of the nose, there. So in a way, it's part of the neurological system. In fact, so you could say it's neurological, but it's not infection of the direct brain in that way. That where you're actually affecting sense of smell directly centrally. It's a peripheral thing.
0: Well, what what I had thought the consensus was was that they they infect the astrocytes in the brain, and that was the cause of these sort of phenomena.
1: Oh, actually, uh, with with smell, I didn't think Mm. that was the case. I think it was the sustentacular cells was the most recent data that I saw now again I could be I could not be up to date but that's the most recent that I saw if they're d- directly affecting centrally which look in some cases I'm sure that's possible especially people who have fulminant covid and they're in the hospital and they have viremia where the virus is going through the blood and all that. But the average person who gets the infection, it's, it's it was felt, I think, to be mostly local there. And that's why it can take like a month or two to regenerate. Some people have longer problems. Now, if you had a severe case and it did centrally infect you, well, then you could imagine it, it can actually be permanent. And in some cases, people have had permanent smell loss from zinc nasal sprays. And again, that's a local effect. Mm. So some people, they just don't regenerate those nerves. We don't know why. So it's actually quite complicated even from a biological standpoint, but you do, it doesn't require central brain infection to cause these effects. Now, right. there are other biological components, right? Like so post-intensive care syndrome where people have been in ICU, they get ICU delirium, their brain looks like someone with dementia when they're done because this is a trauma. It's like serpent in the rainbow being paralyzed and sedated, but able to feel and having horrible delusional delusion thoughts. And I had Dr. Wes Ely, who specializes this. He's an ICU doc on the show talking about this. So that kind of thing can last a lifetime. But that means you got very sick and you were in the hospital. There's that end of the biological spectrum, but then there's just I got infected, a mild case, and now I have these other symptoms. So mm. what's that? happening. You pointed at some of the psychological stuff. There's a thing called the nocebo effect. So we talked about placebo effect where you get a benefit that is felt not to directly be due to the drug, but rather to our psychological response to it. There's a nocebo effect, which is the negative version of placebo. So you kind of have this unconscious or conscious expectation that something bad's going to happen and then it does. Um, So you read in the news that you're going to get long COVID, you're going to have brain fog, you're going to have all these things. And then lo and behold, you get infected and you're just kind of not feeling good for a few months and you're wondering, oh, maybe this is it. That can be a nocebo effect. And it's fed by our constant diet of sort of media input. And then you go into the social space online and you find support groups that are, everybody's sharing their stories of like having these symptoms and it kind of feeds on itself. Now, I'm not saying this is the case with long COVID, but there is a condition called, um, this is gonna really get me canceled, Morgellons syndrome, where... People are convinced they have parasites in their skin. They will dig holes in their skin. They will bring these fibers to the doctor to show them, look, see, look under the microscope. You see these fibers and these tendrils and, and it's delusional. It's a delusional parasitosis. And it is fed also by you know communities online that say, yeah, the Morgellons community. And I've seen patients who have picked holes in their face. It's really heartbreaking, right? But that's the extreme version of that. So where is long COVID? We don't know. It's probably all of those things combined. There's real biological stuff. There's psychological stuff. There's social stuff. And it, it interfaces. So we're going to have to study it a lot better in order to understand what to do
0: about it and what its impact is going to be. So there, there's like a, there's an asymmetry, which is that if long COVID is 100% real, we should still expect there to be a little big nocebo effect. On top of it, right? And if it's 100% nocebo, which seems unlikely to me, then we'll see a lot of nocebo. So the presence of somehow proving, and I don't know how one would prove that, the presence of seeing a nocebo effect wouldn't rule out it being real. In fact, we, we should expect people with the personality type to be vulnerable to that kind of thing, to latch on to long COVID, even if it's real. Right. Which means it's going to have societal
1: costs. It's going to have personal costs. It's going to have human costs, which means we better learn how to deal with it. Now people are studying it. They're seeing similarities in some patients to chemotherapy uh, brain. So this idea of chemo brain, where people do get this brain inflammation and they see some similarities. Again, this is early research, but even the people who are studying it may be somewhat biased in certain ways to look at it from certain angles. So we need to, like, like, we really don't invest a lot in these biopsychosocial diseases because they're very difficult. You can't use just the same hammer we've been using and pound the nail. You have yeah. to think differently even in how you study it. So you're right, even if it's nocebo though, it doesn't make it any less real. You know, like I I like to quote Dumbledore on this, like Harry Potter at the end of the series, you know, he he says he's in the dream with Dumbledore or wherever that heaven space he's at. And he says, is this all real or is this all in my head? And he says, of course, it's all in your head, Harry. That doesn't make it any less real because that's exactly where (laughs) reality is experienced. So we have to really kind of connect with that. And, And that's why I think even talking about it, when I said I'd get canceled and all that, you really have to be compassionate to people who are suffering through it. Yeah. If you're talking in the way that some people talk, some doctors talk this way. Oh, this is just delusional stuff. You know, this is crazy. Um, there's not a real long COVID. You're really discounting the lived suffering of a ton of people. Mm-hmm. And that that's just not, it's not helpful. It's not compassionate.
0: Right. All right. So a couple more topics here I want to touch before I let you go. One is myocarditis risk. This is something I've actually only really paid attention to this through you and Vinay Prasad and a couple other people. But um, what do you have to say about the myocarditis risk from taking the mRNA vaccines and how it compares to the risk from getting COVID and how different people should act on that risk, if at all, based on their gender and their age and so forth? It's a very good, nuanced, and complicated question. And the truth is,
1: you know, Vinay has been diving into this stuff, but the basic premise is this. It appears that there's an age-correlated and sex-correlated risk of myocarditis, and it's typically in those teenage years with boys where the risk seems to be the highest. And even then, the risk isn't that absolutely high. It may be one in 5,000, it may be one in 1,200, but it's not zero. Now, what is myocarditis? Well, really, it's inflammation of the heart muscle and or the lining around the heart. And that'll, that'll land you in the hospital in most cases, actually. So you're talking about a kid who had nothing going on. You gave him a vaccine and now they're in the hospital. So that, that's a big deal in the sense that you don't discount it. You don't go, oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it, right? Because parents will worry about it. Now, the question is what's causing it? There's been speculation online like, oh, maybe they're injecting the vaccine into a vein instead of into the muscle and it's going directly to the heart and so on. That doesn't really make sense because the vast majority of myocarditis cases happen after the second dose, which implies an immune priming mechanism, meaning Mm -hmm. the first dose teaches the immune system something. The second time it happens, immune system responds and there's collateral damage from the immune response in the heart, and you actually see this with the smallpox vaccine they were giving in the military. There was a rate of myocarditis, so this is not an unprecedented thing, and it's not specific to spike protein toxicity or any of the misinformation that you can sometimes see. So, looking at this higher risk group, these young boys, you could say, "Well, okay, what's the risk of COVID itself causing myocarditis?" Now, this is where Blue Church and Red Church all disagree. Thesis tribe will say, "Well, no, COVID is much worse based on these data," and Red Church will say, "Well, no, actually, these data say that." Vaccination has a higher risk of generating myocarditis than natural COVID. And it really depends on how you look at the data and the confounders, because a lot of the studies looking at this are looking at confirmed COVID positive patients who end up hospitalized. Well, those patients are already sicker. They've already been diagnosed you're not including the right denominator, which is everyone who's been infected with COVID, whether they've been diagnosed or not, the true infection rate. And that's hard. It's a hard number to grab. But when you start estimating it, you start to see that myocarditis from COVID is actually less than you think. So then it starts becoming a question of, well, is there a benefit risk thing here? Now, here's my take. This is my editorial and know that I'm biased towards vaccine in general, but I also am biased towards reason. So, I feel like if you have a young boy in that age group, consider a single dose of vaccine. If that kid has already been infected with COVID, you could consider no vaccine or a single dose. You could consider spreading the dose out, although I have not seen the data on the efficacy of preventing myocarditis by spacing dose out 12 weeks or so. I think Marty McCary is more familiar with that. So there isn't a one size fits all there. But I think that the benefit of vaccinating kids is not just... Preventing myocarditis from natural COVID. It's preventing COVID. It's preventing some degree of transmission. It's preventing the MISC, which is that multi system inflammatory syndrome of children, which seems to be less prominent with Delta and Omicron than it was with the earlier strains, which is good. So it's less compelling and preventing whatever long COVID kids may get, which seems to be, you know, kids will say, oh, I still have symptoms. It's hard to really tease out what's going on there. So it's a nuanced question that it's not wrong for parents to ask, but I'm not in the camp that's like, well, then we shouldn't vaccinate kids. Or But one thing to remember, Coleman, is like in Europe, they are much less aggressive about vaccinating kids. In Sweden and other countries in Europe, they don't even give Moderna, which has a higher rate of myocarditis, probably because it's a higher dose, to anyone under 30. So We don't necessarily have the answers here in the U.S. Other countries are doing it differently. So there's room for discussion.
0: Yeah. And then last I had looked at it, Germany and France were recommending Pfizer instead of Moderna to young men because the myocarditis, whatever is true of the actual risk level, it seemed that Pfizer was doing better than Moderna on that score. Yes. And that's simple
1: public health, right? You have two vaccines. They're both pretty effective. Moderna is a little more effective, but you have a low risk population of young people. Why not give them the vaccine that has less myocarditis by a factor of two or three, right? Why not? And that's, that's what they're saying. In the United States, it seems like we have trouble doing that math or thinking in that kind of nuance. Our public health apparatus is much more like, here you go. The fact that the public health apparatus never recognized natural infection as an exemption, say, for getting a full three doses of vaccine generated a ton of mistrust and natural resentment and reactance, which I think was a big mistake. And that was a close vote internally.
0: I haven't been paying attention to the CDC's health messaging on the myocarditis question, but have they walked this line in the right way or have they just labeled this misinformation, any conversation about this, put it in the Joe Rogan, cancel it category? Yeah, exactly, right? Which that's going to work, right? I haven't seen exactly
1: CDC's messaging on this, but I would say that's probably in line with what most public health authorities are saying, which is myocarditis is a rare reversible risk. You should be more worried about COVID. It shouldn't factor into your considerations. That's really how they see it. I don't think that is how parents are going to feel. Many parents are going to feel about it, especially if they're in red church, right? And if you start talking about mandating vaccines for kids and then that kid gets myocarditis, you're getting into really tricky territory. Now, regular childhood vaccines have rare side effects that can be quite bad right? So you can have very like one in a million type of things, idiopathic thrombocytopedic purpura, where your platelets drop, which usually doesn't kill you. It's reversible usually in kids, but like you know, one in 200,000 with MMR, one in 250,000. But we mandate those vaccines for kids because the community benefit of those vaccines seems to outweigh these rare individual risks. It's kind of like a we have a social contract around that. Now with COVID vaccines, the social contract isn't clear because these kids are not huge vectors, it seems. They're not dying in droves, although they can. So it's more like, well, can we allow a little bit of latitude here,
0: right? And that's just a question. Okay, so another question about what public health messaging should do. Whether public health messaging should just try to be As honest as possible about what the state of knowledge is, or whether it should try to be, try to sort of lead society by the hand and massage the message to what elites think would be, would lead to the best outcomes. So, this is, um, you know, Fauci's admission that he basically tailored his comments about how many people needed to get vaccinated to get herd immunity to what he thought the population was ready to hear. You know, he said 70% when 50% of people said they'd get the, get the vaccine. And when that number went up to 60%, he said, all right, now they're ready to hear that the real number is 80% or something like that. He's basically admitted to having a philosophy of public health messaging that allows for lying or bending of the truth for the greater good. And um, this is something, my my bias is to be against anything dishonest, but if it were true, if it turned out to be true that small white lies were a net benefit, I would be open to that being true. I'm not sure that it is, and I'm not sure it justifies the loss of trust that results in the long run. But what can you say about honesty in public health messaging? Yeah, I mean, this is a great discussion because like you said, like if I could
1: Like, I'll tell you this, Coleman. Like, if I could wave some magic wand and basically vaccinate every single American over the age of X with the two doses of the coronavirus vaccine, I know based on data that lives would be saved. Like, lots of lives would be saved. You'd get a few side effects, you'd get some anaphylaxis, these immune things, you'd get some myocarditis, but on balance, you would save a ton of lives. So, we know that there is a absolute sort of truth in the sense that from a sheer numbers perspective, this is true. And that's what I think the Fauci's and these public health guys are trying to do. They're trying to guide people to where they think that truth is. Now, in a post-internet world, with the tribalism that we have and the bullshit detector that I think many Americans have, I don't think that flies anymore. I think that's a kind of a, a sort of a cynical strategy that's not going to work anymore. And so people are either super naive and they believe everything CDC says, or they're super cynical and they don't believe anything. And when Fauci gets caught saying something like that, the cynical side grows bigger. If you look at what happens in Sweden, they have a good deal over years have built trust in their government institutions. So when the government says, you know what, this is what we think you should do, the people just go, yeah, okay. So they have what, 80 plus percent vaccine rate. They never did these kind of intense things and they've had a mixed sort of record. But overall, it's not a you know order of magnitude different than other countries that took different approaches. There's trust, right? If we started from a post-cynical kind of state of trust, then Fauci could be blatantly honest, right? And people would just go, okay, he's being honest. But I think we operate, I think public health has tends to operate from this, oh, the masses are dumb. They need to be guided clearly because there's too much confusion. And look, there is confusion, of course. That's why you keep talking about it. That's why you assume you know people are reasonably able to learn and you keep talking about it and you show nuance and you also say, oh, you know what? So we have new data now. We were not right about that. Like this is new data. We're gonna change our mind on this, right? So showing that humility, I think, is what people want, but they don't see it in public health. Not all public health, but like the bigger agencies. And remember, these are huge government bureaucracies. It's hard for them to get anything kind of squared away without a lot of infighting and weird stuff that happens in government.
0: So, I mean, th- this is one point I wanted to make before was that before COVID, generally the way the American left spoke of Western Europe was as the model in everything related to healthcare. And, you know, what I've noticed is. More often now, it's people in the center of these issues like yourself or or else people on the right side of these issues pointing to those same Western European countries and saying, well, France and Germany acknowledge there's a myocarditis problem. Why can't we acknowledge that myocarditis is a valid conversation to be mitigated through slight changes to our public health policy, at least to be talked about. You know, Sweden does it this way, etc. But there's been a sort of reversal of who looks to Western Europe as the model for sanity, which I find to be interesting. It's fascinating, right? It speaks again to
1: the tribalization. If you're so in a groupthink that you can actually discard years of like. Um, admiration for say the more social structured network of Europe on the left and toss it out and go well, now they don't know what they're doing with covid though we know what we're doing with covid and the right who would never cite france for anything right it's like freedom fries right they're going well look what the french are doing <laughs> you know you're in a in a crazy place but i think it's it's actually important because The Europeans, you can learn a lot from every system, right? If you even look to Canada, you go, why do the Canadians do reasonably well, even though now they're having protests and so on. But you could go, well, let's see. They have a different social contract. They have universal health care. They have maybe a different uh, ethnic makeup of their population. It's hard to say that that's really true in the sense that it's changing outcomes. They have a smaller population. But by all intents, they're so different in terms of outcomes from what happened in the US that you have to look at what these... Inputs are. You look at Iceland. You look at Denmark. You look at Sweden, and you go, okay. So what can we pick and choose and say, okay? And and I think again, that trust piece is what we lack in the U.S. I'll tell you this, Coleman. Like prior to COVID, I would have blindly trusted the CDC on so many things as a conditioned physician because I know right. people there. I know how smart they are. I know the work they do. I know what CDC's done before in terms of Ebola and these other things, and I'm utmost respect. Now, I look at them as yet another source of information that I have mm-hmm. to kind of weigh and go, what are their biases and what's going on, and which is really frustrating because that trust has even filtered into doctors. And I've heard this from other doctors who were just absolute they love the CDC. Now it's like, I don't know, what's the WHO say? Because it's mm-hmm. different.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I think the cause of that is, or the principle to learn from that fact, and I feel the exact same way, is that there's no level of IQ or competence or the combination of the two. There's no level of excellence and competence and intelligence that it doesn't fall victim to partisanship or tribal biases, let's say to be more specific. In other words, most of the issues the CDC was dealing with prior to 2020 were not politicized. They didn't have extremely strong social incentives, tribal incentives to take one side or the other on anything. And so their competence and intelligence just tended to shine, right? Like they had no psychological incentives to get things wrong, whereas now they have been they've essentially, you know, they are coded as a democrat blue tribe institution. And for better or for worse, no matter how smart they are, no matter how competent they are, it's almost impossible for the institution to not, the the quality of their work to not suffer as a result of no one on the inside wanting to seem to validate anything the red tribe might think, right? That is a distortion that is bound to have effects on any institution. So I think that the lesson there is that Again, no level of intelligence or competence is invulnerable to tri- political tribalism. Yeah. And you could
1: even say that they're more vulnerable to some degree because they tend to be quite confident in their expertise, but blind to certain unconscious biases. And, uh, you know, you see it, you know, people say, well, why is Robert Malone risking his career and all of this and that to say these things about vaccines when he, you know, invented the mRNA vaccine? And of course, You can go through and go, no, actually, this is the part of the mRNA that he was involved in, and he did not invent this. And you can go through and debunk all that stuff. But really, what's the internal? Like, What's the motivation? Now, you can't get in his head. That's a mind-reading fallacy. You can't do that. But here's a really clearly smart guy who's very accomplished, who's very eloquent, who's done a lot of great things in his career and worked in upper echelons of various things, right? So what's going on? Well, he's a human being, right? Like I feel A degree of audience capture. If I say something that I know my audience is going to send me a thousand angry emails, I hesitate for a second before I say it. And then I go and say it anyways, but we're all kind of captured by that. Robert Malone is now famous. There's the sort of influence addiction that we have. There's the fact that, you know, you could look at money and go, well, you could write a book and all this stuff that's conscious and unconscious. So there are motivations that are often unconscious where even very smart people can go really off the rails and never, never know it. And CDC is a great, you know, great example. The question is, it's almost like we all need to go on like a two-week meditation retreat and watch ourselves, like go introspect and see what we're doing in our minds and realize that our minds are just noisy shit shows. And once we actually can see that we're much, we're much less reactive and we're more able to see our own biases and actually make them explicit, make unconscious stuff more explicit. I almost feel like that's a prerequisite for a
0: post cynical kind of integral worldview. All right. So finally, before I let you go, I'm going to pull you into the topic that I'm audience captured on, namely race. More cancellation for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if it was A month or two ago now that the New York State Health Department released a document right when the antivirals were coming out around, right around New Year's, just like just before New Year's, essentially triaged the antivirals by comorbidities, but included racial identity as a comorbidity. In other words, a white guy with no comorbidities could not get the antivirals. But a black guy, his race, you know, my race would be, would count as a comorbidity and allow me to get antivirals, right? This was a, a document released by the state health department. And there have been similar policies in, in other areas of the nation where race is being used as a proxy for comorbidities and drugs are triaged on that basis. To what extent people actually follow these guidelines is anyone's guess, actually, I'm, I'm really not sure. I would have to you know, be working Uh, closer to this, but I know there was one video that made the rounds on Tucker Carlson of a white guy in Texas trying to get these antivirals and being told by a nurse that because he was white, he he could not get them. And and that's just the policy, right? It was just, um, and this is the kind of thing where if you're in the Tucker tribe, you're going to see this video. If you're in the MSNBC tribe, you're never going to see this video or see it as considered like debunked misinformation. And, you know, my basic position has been that to me, colorblind medical policy is a basic principle that we ought to observe, right? There's nothing in America that there's no comorbidity that race is such a good proxy for that we should use race instead of that comorbidity. And inevitably you're going to create the sense that you're discriminating against me because of the color of my skin. And how does this, how is this actually correcting racism rather than simply adding more racism to it? So, you know, I'm wondering at all, if you've paid attention to race conscious COVID policies and what your take on them are.
1: You know, this is one of those things So it's funny. So two days from now I'm interviewing Ian Tong, who's a black doctor I trained with head of a large company now. And he wrote an op-ed in Stat News that basically argued the opposite, that we should actually treat, say, a black patient differently and more uh, concordant with their lived experience so it's interesting. It's an interesting counter argument that I'm going to have a conversation with him on the COVID side. I haven't dug into that, but I'll say this, like you said, if race is not an appropriate proxy for a comorbidity, in other words, if you could actually show in data that if you're black, but you don't, and you don't have any other comorbidities, you're at higher risk of dying from COVID and monoclonal antibodies would help that more than a white person with no comorbidities. If you don't have that data, that policy it seems to me just straight discriminatory in the counterway. Now, you can look at kind of demographics and go, well, actually COVID has disproportionately affected Latino, Native American, African American communities, but how much of that is an epiphenomenon of the socioeconomic factors that go into the health of those communities as opposed to pure race? Because what this policy seems, what you're describing, and again, I don't know it directly, is you know you're just saying, okay, well, you're a a black financial bond trader living in the Hamptons, you right. get to get the monoclonal with no comorbidities, you get the monoclonals as opposed to the, you know, white guy that that maybe has one comorbidity and he can't get them. So this is in medicine, this has been a huge issue that people are first of all. If they're they're either afraid to talk about it because they don't want to be, you know, they're like, oh, it's like the third rail or it's subsumed by the wokeness where it's just a monolithic kind of blue tribe identity politics thing. It's like, no, of course, we want to treat uh, them differently because black people differently because they, you know, been historically oppressed and so on and you know, Tuskegee and Tuskegee will come up within five seconds of it and so on. And man, it's, I don't know the answer. I'll say as a doctor, what I want to do is the right thing, but I'll say this, like when I see a patient, I always take into account the whole patient. So if it's like, uh, if it's a black woman in a difficult socioeconomic status, that's factored into, okay, how are we going to get follow-up? What's the situation at home? If it's a white person from a different, difficult socioeconomic status, I think about that too. What are we going to do with the follow-up? And race is purely a kind of a bystander of that. It's more socioeconomic status when I'm looking at it. The only exception are there are certain things with certain populations, like black people tend to have more hypertension they, and they respond to certain medications differently on aggregate. Now, an individual may be different, but on aggregate, there's data to say, well, that's true. And it may be just differences in receptors and different things. It's very subtle differences that tend to aggregate with you know certain groups. So that's the best understanding I have of it. And honestly, I don't even profess to be close to, to being able to crack that one.
0: Yeah. So, well, with regard to this New York policy, this policy was that anyone who is non-white counts as having a comorbidity, right? So a 20-year-old Chinese American woman the way this policy is written would have had a comorbidity and again I don't know this is a the, the kind of policy that is so irrational it wouldn't be hard to believe if just very few people are following it right but that is nuts right <laughs> if that's true that's nuts i mean and and then the only obviously the, the way that looks to especially anyone who sort of identifies with their whiteness in any way, um, like arguably almost half the country probably does to some degree. That just feels like an anti-white policy, right? That you can't justify that based on slavery and Jim Crow because you're treating Asians and, and Hispanics who just got here the same way as as black people. And I, I think there this is one of those areas where there is such a high level of fear and cancellation around speaking ill of any policy that's branded as being pro-racial justice. Even though the vast majority of people probably, the vast majority of, of Democrats and liberals privately considering this policy would probably think that doesn't make much sense. That's certainly the vast majority of people that work in hospitals, that work, clo- you know, doctors would, would not write this policy, even if they're card-carrying anti-racists. But- the level of stigma around any criticism here makes it so that no one wants to be the first person to criticize this. And we end up getting a policy that nobody wants. You know, I don't think anti-racists even want this policy. Many of them, at least, you know, it's insane. Like I'll say as a doctor, first of all, I don't want, I,
1: I generally don't like the government making policies about what drugs I can and can't use. That is a medical decision generally, right? A hospital can have a policy insurance companies can have policies on what they're going to reimburse. There are different ways to gatekeep those things that are good and bad. But when the government says, no, only people of color, like where, where would that put me? I'm an off white, like person. Uh, my parents are from India, but they're of Iranian descent. Like where would, would I get monoclonals? Like right. it becomes this, like the intake at, in the ER, like, I'm sorry. So what's your race? I declined to state. No, it's really important because you can't get monoclonals unless you say something other than white. Like you can see where it just becomes a total shit show.
0: I mean, this is not where we want to be as a country. And it's not a valid solution to anti-Black racism, which is real. I think that's the first time I've talked about that specific part of it. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So, you know, your mom went
1: through this. Do you feel as a Black man that the healthcare system treats you differently if you cross the door than some of
0: your friends say who are white or, or not uh, of color? No, I don't. Obviously, I'm an N of one. I, I wouldn't feel... I've never once felt that my pain was taken less seriously or anything like that. And obviously, from the articles I read, many Black people would disagree. And it's not something I've gone into in enough detail to have a strong opinion of, but many people feel like on average, one of the implicit biases that exists in the medical world is that doctors won't, will take a, a black person's pain less seriously on average than a white person's, or will take a woman's pain less seriously than a man's. That's the kind of thing I, I can see being true on average. You know, I, I can see it being a, a small average tendency that gets inflated by sensationalist news outlets. But, and this is one of those cases where for the person it's happened to question it at all is like long covid like serious long covid is is gonna you know sort of understandably seem highly unepathetic because I think there's no doubt there there have been many cases in American history where a black person's pain was not taken seriously, or where just rank malpractice has gone overlooked because of a person's race I mean, I think. That used to be rather commonplace. And as society has gotten less and less racist, I think this happens less and less. And the scary truth about human nature is that bigotry will probably never be extinguished fully any more than something like murder will. Like, do we do we ever expect to live in a world with zero murders where not a single husband? like goes crazy after he discovers his wife cheating and murders her do we expect to live in a world with zero ojs ever again well no we we can expect for the murder rate to come down we can expect to have a really robust policy for punishing murderers but no one expects to live in a violence-free world because of an intuitive sense that human nature isn't perfect and that is how I view bigotry and racism to to an extent I think it has come down. I think it can continue to decrease. I think we, in certain areas like the housing market, we can create stronger incentives for people to not be racist. Um, there are ways in which we can change incentives and should, but I never expect it to be gone completely. And you know, my lived experience as a black person is that I've experienced baseless racism only a couple of times in my life. And never in a domain, uh, never in the domain of health and never in a domain where it seriously hindered my possibilities in life. That, yeah, that see, that perspective is
1: very helpful. And I'll say this, like, there's a classist thing that happens in healthcare. That is overt. Mm-hmm. So we like to say, you know, if there's, un- if there's racism in healthcare, which I think there is unconscious bias for sure, it's residual, it's getting better. I really think that. But it, but the overt racism, unless you're in a part of the country where that's just a thing, I don't think I see it. I've not seen it where I am. What I see is this very interesting, subtle kind of thing that happens. When I trained at Stanford, you know, there was a doc who he would always kind of pull out the race of the patient on rounds and be like, well, this person's Chinese. So maybe we can make them feel better if we get them some congee, which is a rice porridge. And, you know, this <laughs> is a, like white German dude. And I'm like, dude, like me and my wife were like, you know, Iranian and Chinese were looking at this going, dude, that's that just feels racist to me. I don't know what it is. I mean, his intent is good, but doesn't feel right.
0: Um, but we're open like cla- some fried chicken to make him feel. Comfortable.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know, like, right. right. Well, on, there's man. a Popeye's down the street. You go make a run in turn. And it, it was like that. Right. But because it was Chinese, somehow he was being, you know, culturally aware. Right. And, and I was like, well, uh, yeah, no. But but the truth is you could sense with the guy because you knew the guy. You're like, I don't think this guy is an overt racist. He just is conditioned in a way that he just doesn't understand that that's not cool. So Mm -hmm. it's not like you're going to hate him as some kind of racist, but you do want some kind of evolution of that. Classism though, man, that's everywhere in healthcare. Like if somebody has money, they are treated a certain way. And if, and if somebody doesn't, they're treated another way. And people will do a wallet biopsy before anything happens in the Mm -hmm. emergency department to see what insurance you have, are you insured, et cetera. And Everything changes. Now, typically not at the level of doctors and nurses as much, but it does creep in. Um, And that's something that people don't talk about nearly enough. And when you Mm -hmm. look at more egalitarian healthcare systems like Canada or something, and you see different outcomes, I think some of it may be that. One last thing I want to say about that there's an extreme version of that, which is VIP syndrome. So when the billionaire comes in and he's donated a wing to the hospital, He gets this very special treatment. He gets a private room. He doesn't get vital signs checked, you know, every four hours and all this other stuff. He doesn't get the rectal exam because nobody wants to do the rectal exam on, you know, Joe billionaire, worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. So they actually, they do, they can do worse. So this is called VIP syndrome. So class actually is a big effect.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's just made me think of what I have encountered in my lived experience, not, not just with my health, but with, with my girlfriend's health is, it's kind of a, a rank lack of empathy in general that I think ha- has very little to do with race. Encountering, in one case, a doctor that was essentially trying to bully my girlfriend into having a procedure that she had had twice before. It was kind of a stopgap measure on a problem that she had. Uh, and she had done a ton of research, been dealing with this for years, you know, knew, knew a lot about it and was a med school track herself. and. She decided next time this this flared up, I don't want to get the stopgap procedure. I want to get the full procedure or nothing at all, right? And this doctor just was a female doctor of the same race as her, <laughs> was just trying to bully her with no empathy into getting this procedure that she was like, I do not want to do that again. It was horrible, horribly painful, and it only solves a problem temporarily. I want to get this much, much and it was just a total lack of it was it went beyond lack of bedside manner it was like if and she was in horrible pain right so she was wasn't really able to fend for herself but if i hadn't been there to say to just insist with a kind of masculine energy that she's not going to get this and she's going to get that she may have just got bullied into it you know and it's it's and this was at a really good hospital so so like that kind of thing had that been a, a white male doctor, for instance, instead of uh, an Indian female doctor, which is what it was, I can totally see how someone would think uh, this is completely racism. They're not taking my pain seriously. And it could just be that there is a, a, a wider problem with a lack of empathy, with all, all kinds of stuff that are interpreted racially, but aren't always. That is a cru-
1: what you did, that story is so important because Again, the empathy lack, the kind of um, paternalism, in this case, maternalism, and the fact that if that were, again, if that were a white doctor and a patient of color, you could easily through your, if your lived experience is experiencing a lot of racism, that's easily going to fit that, that mold, easily. Now, one thing I'll say, this is interesting. You said it was an Indian female doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, we assume that people of color are sympathetic to other people of color And that's not always the case. Um, So sometimes you can't fully exclude that sort of unconscious vibe, Uh, particularly, you know, I, again, I can speak for Indians because that's culturally where my family comes from. It's like, they're pretty racist. (laughs) Like they're still catching up with, you know, (laughs) modernity in some, in some measure, but Mm. uh, it's gotten better and better. But yeah, just a, just a point
0: that I picked up hearing you talk. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Well, all right. Now that I've gotten you in all the trouble that I can possibly get you in, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let <laughs> you go. I love it actually. Yeah. These are conversations we need to have. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. So before I let you go, can you point my audience in your direction? If, if they don't already know who you are, I really recommend uh, your channel and, and your uh, partner in crime, Vinay Prasad. So can you just point them in your direction? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the easiest thing is the character
1: MD two Gs. You can find it on the web, zdogmd.com or on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the usual places. My podcast is called The ZdogMD Show. And the podcast I do with Dr. Vinay Prasad is called The VP ZD Show. Um, Vinay Prasad, Zubindamanya. And you can find that on all the usual platforms and on my website, uh, zdogmd.com under the podcast tabs.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, man. This was fun.